This is the MG Car Club Podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this podcast, we're joined by Graham Robson, esteemed author and historian for the first of our two-part series on tracing the history of the Abingdon Works Competition Department. Plus, Adam and I explore the history of Kimber House, the MG Car Club headquarters, and I uncover the fascinating story of the first of the big MG saloons. The MG Car Club Podcast. Hello and welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Hope you're well. Wayne Scott here with you and Adam Sloman as well in a completely different location. Yes, at long last, we're not talking to him amongst the white goods of his utility room. But Adam, you are back in Kimber House. I am indeed, mate. I am, uh, instead of Mr Zanussi, I'm sharing the the room with the ghost of Mr Kimber. Um, as uh, some of the staff used to used to joke that the house was haunted, but uh, yeah, now I am back in Abingdon, and as I look out the window, uh, I can see the factory admin block. So yeah, it's nice to be back. Fantastic, and you've not really worked from there for over three months now since the lockdown in the UK began, and it has been very odd. But now, hopefully, you're starting to feel a sense of normality descend back on the MG Car Club. Yeah, it's it's lovely being back. It's really nice to be back. Um, things are different. Um, we're obviously still not able to welcome visitors, uh, and people are in different places in the building. And we're still waiting for for Andy to come and join us back at Kimber House. He's still working from home, and I'm still here in lovely uh, rural England uh, in Rutlandshire, as we call it. So yeah, we're all still a little bit on a limb, but things are looking better your end. Yeah, definitely. And it's uh, like I said, it's it's brilliant to be back. Excellent stuff. And of course, Kimber House enjoying a very important anniversary in the last couple of weeks as well. It's 30 years since the MG Car Club moved into Kimber House. And of course, as well as celebrating 90 years of the MG Car Club this year, it's really nice to recognise the fact that the club has been back where it should be, of course, on the location of the MG factory at Abingdon for three whole decades now. The club has been inextricably linked to MG as a manufacturer since day one, but it was very nomadic in the early days, wasn't it? Yeah, we had a couple of locations initially. The the club uh, had some premises in the middle of Abingdon, um, but then actually came up onto the factory site itself and enjoyed a lot of support from the factory uh, proper all the way through until 1969. And it was at that point that the club sort of, like you say, became really nomadic and ended up with a lot of different places across the UK. Um, at one point, we ended up as far north as Lincolnshire um, and were working out of volunteers' sort of back bedrooms. Um, but despite all that turmoil, the club was able to endure that but was always looking for a return back to Abingdon. And we finally got our chance in, in 1989 when we were able to buy Kimber House and then through a tremendous fundraising campaign from our members we were able to purchase the property renovate it and open in July 1990. What's the story of how Kimber House came about then because I'm understanding right that it was quite derelict actually when the MG Car Club took it on there was quite a a large restoration process to get it ready for the car club to actually move in wasn't there? Yeah so the the houses are 11 and 12 Cemetery Road um, and uh, it's my recollection that Number 12, which is the sort of where the front door is now, uh, was largely derelict, but there was a sitting tenant in number 11. And the property was owned by the Pavlova Leather Company, 
who if you dig back through the history you'll see they shared initially they shared the factory site with mg a lot of people ask if pavlova shared uh, leather for seats and door cars and things like that but there was never any any crossover into the cars um, but they did own the two houses here so in the late 80s the plan was that the buildings were going to be demolished um, and they were going to build flats on on both houses but then as anyone who was old enough at the time will remember we sort of hit a bit of a recession at the tail end of the 80s and the appetite for investment just wasn't there so both properties were available um, and the club undertook a huge fundraising effort to buy the houses uh, and then we set about the renovation and initially we occupied uh, number 12 while we worked out what to or how to help the tenant who was in number 11. And what's amazing is given that Abingdon has such huge property prices as well, um, much higher than the average in most of the rest of the country, the, the appeal started in April 1988, just two years before basically the launch of the MG Car Club arriving at Kimber House 30 years ago in 1990. It really only took two years to raise the funds to buy that place. That's an amazing effort of club members at the time to rally round and raise that much money to bring the MG Car Club home to Abingdon. Amazing effort, wasn't it, in those days? Yeah, it's a testament to the strength and of feeling for the car club that, you know, members not just in the UK but all over the world um, contributed to, to get us to get us here and to bring us home so yeah it's it's an amazing story and when you look around the building and you can see how the building has grown and evolved over the past 30 years and sort of grown with the club um yeah i'm i'm very very proud to work here at kimber talk us through then how it relates to where the original factory site was um for those who haven't been there describe what the building is like obviously the first thing you notice when you arrive uh, just down the road from kimber house is that there's the, all the brown tourist signs that point it out as a tourist site within abingdon and then you arrive down this very little narrow lane which is cemetery road describe how that location fits relative to where the old factory was and what's there now Okay, so the probably the most iconic image um, of the factory is that photograph from the 1930s of the Triple M's streaming out of the factory gates. Um, and if you look at that photo, you can just about make out the corner of Kimber House. So if you exit Kimber House and turn to your left, you will see um, what was the factory admin block, which has now been uh, converted into some very expensive apartments. Um, I'm sure they're lovely inside. Um, and uh, yeah, the road that is Cemetery Road, uh, every MG that was built between 1930 uh, or 1929, sorry, 1980, drove down that road straight past our front door. Uh, Cecil Kimber himself would have walked past our front door. Um, so yeah, so it's right on the very cusp of where the factory site stood. Well, of course, Cecil Kimber himself was club president between 1935 and his death in 1945. But then enter John Thornley. Now, he was general manager and subsequently managing director of the MG Car Company. And you now have a suite dedicated to his name at Kimber House. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the John Thornley suite was built in 2010 
because um, as much as we love Kimber House, it's important to remember that it is two Victorian terraced houses. Um, so space has always been of a premium. So we decided that um, we ought to look to expand the building and create a space that members could use, um, that we could use for events, that we could use for board meetings. So yeah, we, we first extended the, the clubhouse in 2010 with the John Thorney Suite, which is a real sort of bonus to the club. It gives us space to display a car. Um, like I said, it's it's available for our centres and registers to use for, for meetings. Um, and the nice thing is it's self-contained. So if those guys want to come in um, and use that space at the weekend, it's got a kitchen, it's got toilets, it's got everything you would need to host an event without having to open the whole of Kimber House. So it's a really useful um, space and we've used it for all sorts of weird and wonderful events. And of course, normally... When you are open to visitors, COVID's put paid to that just temporarily for a moment. But uh, when you are open to visitors, there's the opportunity to look through all of the archives, use those facilities, as you mentioned, and just really soak up the MG Car Club. And the shop is particularly impressive, isn't it? Yeah, Kimber Stores is a big is a big draw for visitors. Um, Inica works really hard to make sure that everything looks really nice and really smart. It's all very nicely presented. And it's it's the perfect way to end your visit to Kimber House, really. Well, there's over 10,000 photos plus production records for most of the MGs produced up to 1950 and loads of little collectible items that you can have a nose through as well. And uh, some of those that have been donated to the club by members or some of those that have uh, been found as the car club has sought to preserve various aspects of MG history. And the best thing about Kimber House for me is that when I'm sat in your office, Adam, and you're telling me off or something, <laughs> you can look out of your window and know that down Cemetery Road, every MG that was built at Abingdon once passed. And that's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. And, you know, you can still do those factory test routes. Um, and like you say, you mentioned the archive. You know, we added the Bill Wallace wing, which is home to our, our archive. That was opened in 2016. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to see here. Um, and hopefully, as things continue to improve, we can get back to welcoming visitors from all over the world back to Kimber House. It's all part of the incredible heritage that the MG Car Club enjoys being as it was intertwined, interwoven, a part of the MG manufacturer, and of course still is. I'd like to talk about MG saloons now, if I can, Adam. That sounds like a lovely idea, mate. I love an MG saloon. <laughs> well, it occurred to me recently, and you remember last week on the podcast, I was telling you all about my trip to the British Motor Museum at Gaydon, and um, recently there was another one of those fantastic debates that rages on our social media pages about, <laughs> about MG Motor and the models that they offer, and the usual sort of conversation around the fact that at the moment, as we're very aware, MG Motor doesn't have a sports car. And Do they not? No, they, they don't, Adam. They don't. Um, and uh, not since the MGF has uh, MG Motor offered a sports car. We understand there is one coming, of course, and we covered that story a few weeks ago now. But, and I know there's a lot of people sort of up in arms about this, very angry about this, Adam. They debate it at length, long into the early hours of the morning on our Facebook pages. Um, but it's nothing new. And what I discovered in the British Motor Museum at Gaydon was one of my new most favourite cars in the world and I hadn't really spent the time looking at this car until last week and it's a beauty. 
it's in the display that you can see in the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. You can go and get up close and personal with this car. And it's a story that I wasn't familiar with, but I am now. It's just gorgeous. It was a 1936 MG SA. Now, this was a car that was released with quite an advanced thing called a pushrod overhead valve engine. <laughs> oh, yes. Very advanced for 1936. It was 2.2 litres when it came out. 78 brake horsepower and capable of 85 miles per hour. And you're saying to me, well, that's not unusual for an MG in 1936. They were quick sports cars. But this car, when it was launched in 1936, caused a lot of controversy. People were up in arms, those dedicated MG followers in 1936. Some MG customers couldn't believe that a brand that was entirely associated with stripped-out sports cars had made this MGSA and why they couldn't understand it was it was a massive gigantic saloon car this is 1936 uh, the SA also had a couple of spin-offs was the VA which was a four-cylinder one and a half litre version basically a sort of more economical version of this big SA and the WA which was a more powerful 2.6 litre version of the six-cylinder engine that the WA had in it and those sister models were popular right up until the war when, of course, production had to cease. Interestingly, if you look through the story of its unveiling at the Motor Show in 1936, it also came around about the same time as Swallow sidecars were starting to build bigger saloons on the standard chassis base. The SS Jaguar came out just before the war as well. Many people said that although it didn't have the out-and-out -out pace of the SS Jaguar saloon, it did have far superior quality to the Jaguar. It's right. The MG heralded at the time as having far superior quality to the Jaguar. This was really, really a massive turning point for MG in 1936. Tickford's did a convertible as well of this. And of course, after the war, the Y-types came along. But as we know the story, Lord Nuffield... He was calling the shots by that point. Cecil Kimber had passed away. He wasn't involved with the company at all. Um, and in comes someone else to the company who had become obsessed by this point by Italian styling. And that man was called Gerald Palmer. And do you know what Gerald also designed, Adam? Wasn't he a Jowett? The Jowett Javelin. And it was just an interesting story because here we are in 2020 discussing the fact that MG have all lost their way because they make saloon cars. That's the same conversation that was happening in 1936. <laughs> 1936, before the Second World War. But uh, what's interesting, of course, was that you can follow the blueprint right the way through from that 1936 MGSA right up until the badge engineering of the 80s and 90s and into the Zs of the 2000s. The whole lineage, you can follow it through because... Gerald Palmer, who designed the Javelin, came along. He was obsessed with this Italian styling. Lord Nuffield liked that whole idea. And that, in turn, without going into the long, drawn-out story of the MG Magnet, that was how the MG Magnet came about. At the time, of course, MG was being swallowed up into the big British Motor Corporation as well. And there was a big argument at the time because... Um, Leonard Lord turned up and decided that he was going to get rid of all the other brands apart from Austin and there was a big wrangling fight at the time to ensure that some of those brands uh, existed. The Wolseley 444 which of course looks very similar to the Magnet but actually 
the magnet has lots more differences than you'd think for those of you who own a magnet would know those differences already um, the magnet was beaten by the Wolseley purely because and this is the important bit the magnet was delayed in production while they found a faster engine for it a better tuned sportier engine and that began this whole sort of sporty badge engineering of putting the mg badge on a saloon car to make it the sporty version of other vehicles that were in bmc at the time i thought adam that was a fantastic and fascinating story yeah i mean i'm i'm a big fan of the the saloon mgs i mean the the svws that you touched on there um we've got uh, obviously the svw register in the car club and there's a very small pool of those cars because of like you said the outbreak of world war ii and i think in some parallel universe somewhere where we are spared the horrors of the second world war um you can imagine mg going from strength to strength with those with those big cars um and really giving jaguar a bloody nose and then who knows where they would have gone through the 50s and 60s and 70s um you know we might be talking now about mg as a as a manufacturer of big um sporty saloon cars um with the with the sports cars as more of a footnote but um yeah i i love the mg saloons i've i've probably had more experience with mg saloon cars than i have sports cars to be honest with you mm. and amazingly whilst i was sort of looking into the story of that uh, 1936 essay i also discovered that the mg magnet was supposed to be a riley first of all I didn't know that. Yeah, we love them. Keep the magnets coming here in the MG Car Club. Talking of sporting MGs, uh, that leads me very nicely onto our interview for this episode of the MG Car Club podcast. We've talked about the fact that it has been the 90th anniversary year of the MG Car Club and 30 years since the MG Car Club arrived at Kimber House. But also a very important anniversary this year is the anniversary of the closure of the Abingdon Works. And to tell us more about that story is Graham Robson. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. In the modern motoring world, special tuning brands are all the rage, but arguably it was a very professional, if underfunded, operation based in the MG factory at Abingdon who were responsible from 1955 for the Works MGs and other hugely successful British cars in motorsport. They also launched the careers of some legendary drivers as well. This year marks the anniversary of the closure of the Abingdon Works Department, so for the first in our two-part series looking at the history of this part of MG and BMC, welcome to the podcast my great friend and mentor, Graham Robson. Hello, Wayne. I tell you what, if we're going to explain the history, how long have you got? Indeed. Well, let's start at the beginning of the story then, in 1955. And let's talk about where MG was and where BMC was and the British motor industry in general in 1955. Well, at the time, BMC was the biggest corporation, the biggest motoring corporation in the country. Both, uh, let's go back a few years when... On the one hand, there was Austin in Birmingham and there was the Morris or the Nuffield organization based in Oxford. They were individually 
large, but they got together in 1952, and suddenly, with a market share of, don't laugh now, was something approaching 45% of the British market, was a new corporation called the British Motor Corporation, BMC. Now, MG's part in that was that it had originally, of course, been... Um, I shall call him Lord Nuffield all the time. It was originally Lord Nuffield's indulgence to allow Cecil Kimber to build up a little sports car company called MG. Uh, and eventually in 1935, that had been swept into what became the Nuffield organization, which included Morris, it included Wolseley, and eventually it included Riley as well. And so MG was not an individually separate company, even from 1935. Therefore, when BMC was set up in 1952, MG was a very important part of what was a colossally large organisation. And obviously MG had built its name during the Cecil Kimber time for being the sporting versions of Morris's, and this was really an extension of that, and motorsport almost, in a sense, became professional for MG at this point, didn't it? Indeed, and the only the only thing that was immediately controversial, and uh, I'm so old that I can even remember this as a schoolboy, was that it, when BMC was growing up, it wasn't only MG that was making sports cars, it was that other <clears throat> company called Austin Healy as well. And there was what could be described as friendly, in inverted commas, uh, rivalry between MG and Austin Healy ever after that. But certainly MG had become almost by definition the most important sporting brand in bmc that then explains why i suppose the bmc competitions department was formed in the abingdon works where the mgs were being built but let's explore that a little bit in more detail how did it all begin and how did it become the professional abingdon works department that it did become and my goodness, don't the uh, lovely surviving people from that, don't they love the description of professional because they did the job properly in those days. But basically, let's go back to what you were saying, uh, that in the mid-1950s, there were fragmented sporting activities uh, in the corporation, which included MG at Abingdon, uh, and the competitions such as they were, were run from the development department in a rather friendly all boys together operation in the design development department. There was also up the road in Warwick, the Austin Healy operation, and they were into motor racing with the, with the BN1 and they were into records, record breaking and things like it. And uh, they, those were the two that mattered. At that time, Nuffield, i.e. Morris and Austin, Morris were not involved at all. Now, it got to a point where um, obviously the world was becoming more sporting orientated if you like the world of motoring uh, and um, the board of BMC and don't forget that uh, Len Lord or uh, Sir Leonard Sir Leonard Lord was chairman of the company by then Lord Nuffield had retired uh, they decided that some sort of official single competitions department should be set up they looked around and they decided that well because they looked the most professional of the lot and they had some very promising cars they would set up a separate department under a separate roof at Abingdon. Leonard Lord, let's talk about him because he, he comes across in the history books as being quite a character and one of the things that illuminates his character for me is this myth, if you like, who knows if it's true, as to the origins of the rosette that of course the BMC cars were badged with and MG being 
pivotal to this because safety fast was emblazoned across uh, the rosette used on the works cars but it was this very agricultural looking rosette and the story goes that leonard lord got so upset with the marketing department who were taking too long to come up with the branding and the logos that he needed that he just cast down this rosette that one of his prize hereford cattle had won at an agricultural show and said do something like that and that's why we ended up with those bl rosettes Len, Len Lord was very much he wasn't just a man who concentrated solely on business although he was ruthless and successful he was i think i'm allowed to describe him now because he's been gone for many years he was what could be called a rough diamond uh, who wasn't good at calling spades spades he called them other things but he also he dabbled in agriculture as you've just mentioned wayne isn't that interesting once he had set up that system other companies followed and and um, I, I have particular knowledge of uh, the, the triumph company in the 1960s the triumph company looked around and said we should do something like it and they did team triumph and also ford were very good at doing the logos as well so once again len lord set quite a lot of standards and it's something that's very prevalent in the modern motor industry isn't it with the m sport badges on bmws and the various mercedes sports versions audi sport all of those names that we now associate with modern brands but it kind of all started with this did we invent it graham more or less and and what what's the nice thing about the md connect is that once the department was set up at abingdon it was as i said able to operate under its own roof um, quite quickly it was given quite a lot of autonomy as well and although mg's general manager john thornley kept what could be called a fatherly eye on it the competitions department was left to generate its own success by the end of the 50s though the competitions manager marcus chambers was becoming more and more convinced that they needed more special cars to do very well indeed so whereas mg competitions in the early 50s had started with what you might call friends of the mg company driving their cars as well as they could and they were all of what i call the public school gentlemanly type marcus started looking around for what i call the young bloods and um, this was a process that went on into the 60s so mg and motorsport at abingdon became progressively and very successfully more professional particularly at the end of the 1950s and early 60s and i think i think i'm allowed to say even here when the mg car club people are listening that it wasn't only mg that the department built in those days they also got involved in particularly in the austin healy's and uh, they would shortly become involved in minis as well and of course the minis being one of the most legendary uh, bmc success stories in terms of motorsport but also as you said they're building the professionalism and also looking for young blood and building the names of some pretty impressive famous drivers really uh, the list reads like this jack sears john gott pat moss the morley brothers paddy hopkirk with the minis of course timo you've Mackinen, got the list in front of you <laughs> rauno altonen um a huge number of not just british drivers but drivers from around the world that were brought through the ranks and discovered thanks to the abingdon works amazing list there isn't it and because the the the, the three competition managers that matter in this period that we're talking about first of all marcus chambers who was an old hand who had uh, way back in the 1930s been a racing driver and raced raced hrgs at le mans uh, he was followed by stuart turner 
1961. Stuart Turner was the ultimate professional. The beady-eyed, he used to call himself one of the beady-eyed Coke-drinking professionals. I mean Coca-Cola. <laughs> and, and to be followed by Peter Browning, who had been involved in running the uh, MG Car Club magazine, Safety Fast, I believe. They were all very professional people who wanted the best drivers. Once they got them, they made sure they kept them. They paid them, but not incredibly well. They paid them. And they developed things just as, as far as they could on what, in fact, was a fairly limited competition's budget. And how did they develop those cars? Because it's not as if Abingdon sat in the middle of a big racetrack. How, how did they manage to get the performance out of those cars and prepare them? There were really two ways of doing it. One was that it even started with Marcus Chambers and his assistant, who, who I, I, I'm still happy to say we see around, Bill Price. And he was, he was um, Marcus Chambers's assistant, and he went on to be a pivotal part of MG Motorsport for a long time. First of all, they had to choose the most suitable cars to go racing and rallying, which would be MGAs and MGBs, and it would be, and again, I've got to mention the other makes, the Austin Healey 3000. They had to, if you like, concentrate on those cars and then continue developing the special bits they needed. Now, it was the drivers and it was the, the small group of very experienced mechanics and development people like dear Doug Watts, who was a foreman mechanic for many years, they could decide what they wanted. It then fell to the competition managers to nag the other parts of BMC to help them. And the obvious example, which I always make when I'm talking to uh, MG enthusiasts and everything else is most of the engine work was done not by MG, not at Abingdon. In fact, I don't think they had, there was more than probably one test bed in the whole place uh, but it was mostly done by a man called eddie mayer who ran the uh, if you might call it the skunk works at the bmc engines factory in coventry and almost everything connected with the power tuning of engines for mgbs and and uh, the lightweight mgc engines that followed was done by eddie mayer and his team in um, in coventry now a similar example also is that when Marcus Chambers was looking for better transmissions uh, for the Austin Healy's. He went straight to someone he knew at Longbridge and said, listen, you're involved in doing Austin Healy's. If we wanted so-and-so, could you help us? And they said, oh, yes, we've just been waiting for someone to ask us. So uh, the point I think I'm making is that most of the expertise existed within BMC, but it was such a large organization that it needed people with the ruthless attention of Marcus Chambers, Stuart Turner and Peter Browning to know who to find, who to wind up and how to get results. And it worked. And of course, eventually BMC would become British Leyland. It would suck in even more British marks and the likes of Triumph would then join them under that umbrella. And in the early 60s, you were working as competition secretary for Triumph at the time. Were you aware of what the works at Abingdon were doing and, and were they the real competition that you had to beat at the time? Well, I promised that I wouldn't mention this too much in, on, on this podcast, but, uh, but yes, I was involved at Triumph at the time. I was also involved as a, a very... Uh, active co-driver in rallying both at national and international level so I, I saw a lot of the BMC people they were very friendly but they weren't very outgoing as to what they were doing but one only had to 
listen in to their suppliers. And the example here is we were both contracted to Dunlop for tyres. We were contracted. We were contracted to Ferrodo for brakes and so on and so on. But we had to keep our ear to the ground as to what they were doing. And the example I always give, uh, and this isn't for me me being bright, it's just because I looked around, uh, Abingdon decided that they needed a better cooling system, and I'm sorry to mention this, in the big Heelys, and they developed a system of putting cooling vents in the side of their front wings. And it was all allowed by the regulations. And we looked at, the, looked at this and thought, yeah, we can do that. So we did that on certain other Triumph models, and it worked. Now, it, there was also the question of tyre development. The, we, we knew that BMC would always get the lion's share of anything that was new because they were bigger. In those days, don't forget, BMC was still separate from Leyland Triumph. Uh, but nevertheless, we we could keep asking Dunlop, what are you doing for them? What are you doing for them? And, and again, the example is that uh, we both were able to get the very first radial ply tyres for rallying with a, with a cross-country tread. Now, that hadn't been done before, but between BMC and ourselves, we got together with Dunlop to do it. So we didn't cooperate because we were still in different corporations until British Leyland was formed. We didn't cooperate, but we weren't secretive and we weren't silly about it. And I think one of the nicest traditions there was at the time was that Every year at press day on at the motor show, every year we would arrange about half a dozen of us. This included the Ford people and the Sunbeam people. We were all arranged to meet on the Dunlop stand on press day and then go and have lunch together. So that you might call that our annual boys get together. Fantastic. And what a get-together it must have been, a party I should have been at, Graham. Um, well, another myth that we should explore at this point is the story around painting the MGs red by the Abingdon Works team. Now, this allegedly was done to confuse the Italian spectators on the Alpine rallies who, knowing that prior to this only the Alfa Romeos were painted red, used to jump out in front of any cars that weren't red to try and obstruct their progress in favour of the home country's Alfa Romeos. Is there some truth in that? There's a lot of truth in it, and of course it comes back again to the sheer experience of people like Marcus Chambers at the time who had the right sort of drivers who could keep telling him stuff and I'm I'm told on very good authority that that why don't we pay the cars red story it went down to John Gott who was a very experienced driver and by the way he was the chief constable of Northamptonshire at the time how about that for having the right contracts uh, it was John Gott who said well we need help on the Mille Mille, for instance. We need to be able to get, uh, the example was, we need to get across the level crossings before they close them off. Uh, and we need to be red like the Alphas. So, yes, it was, it was certainly true, absolutely true. And, of course, they didn't even have to develop a new paint because there was always a red MGA or a red midget or whatever in production. It was just a matter of policy. And, therefore, it became a very nice uh, tradition. It, it, I'm sure you would agree with me that, that from then on, almost, almost any works car built at Abingdon with whatever badge, and by the time we get to British Leyland, we're talking about Austin land crabs and, and, and all sorts of things, would be painted red. And then a bit later on, they were painted red with a white roof. And the enthusiasts thought that was very important. Amazing. It just goes to show how different motorsport was then, that the spectators could have had such an impact <laughs> on the result of the rally. You know, they were so close. I think them. I'm right. The white roof only appeared on Mini Coopers after 
the rally cars had started using that as a, as a sign of a works car, and, and they'd had customers coming in, coming in to saying, I want to buy a Mini Cooper, and it needs a white roof. And so th- there was a sort of cross-pollination both between motorsport, who got an awful lot of mechanical improvements through, um, and, and the dealer chain. But it's interesting, and again, it all happened a long time ago, but it's interesting that almost as soon as the uh, BMC Competitions Department started be getting success with cars like the MGA, and don't forget things like record cars as well, it wasn't until that happened that there was a real boom in sales of MGs both at, at this at home and also in the United States. What we must never forget, and I, I have to admit I didn't know about it as much as I should have done, was just how important uh, MG and its and its image was in the States. So MG also had did a lot of racing in the States. That wasn't usually done from Abingdon, but they had the right sort of people, particularly in California uh, and the East Coast, who could do it for them. Well, of course, it was the era of the phrase that was coined, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, and this is a perfect example of how BMC were using that. They were very much focused on making their own works competition cars win in motorsport but they hadn't been too keen at this stage on helping owners to hot up their own cars or indeed providing tuning parts to the aftermarket in 1963 that all changed didn't it they'd already created a series of tuning sheets and the mg car club archives holds the ones for the mgb for example Uh, but if you read through those tuning sheets the, the language in them is quite sort of sharp and short and you can hear the discouragement in the tone of voice but in 1963 it was the dawn of special tuning and that changed didn't it uh, i i love the the word discouragement you use there uh, this story goes back to a long time before you were born wayne when um john thornley who was by no means general manager level at mg in the 30s he had developed that sort of thing for people who who wanted to enter their mg tas and their pbs and things in reliability trials in this country. So they'd already started what you might call a leaflet of information on each model and also developed some special parts. But by the 1960s, and I remember, I remember precisely the year that you mentioned, because by then, Stuart Turner, who might be a lovely man to talk to, and he still is, uh, he, was, he was ruthlessly organizational in many ways. He got absolutely and utterly fed up with, for instance, Pat Moss and Paddy Hopkirk would go out and, and do something remarkable in 1961 or 62, and there would be a flood of inquiries from private owners saying, we want a Mini like this, or we want an MGB like this. A, they would ask an impossible question, can you build us a car? Answer, no. But the other question was, can you provide us every, all the information as to how to do it? He eventually said, this is silly, it's wasting a lot of our time, we must ask uh, our elders and betters if we can set up a company, that, well, not a company, a department called Special Tuning. And so this is where it came from, that Special Tuning was started um, purely to satisfy the huge enthusiasms of the MG owners who wanted to do their own thing. And, of course, by then, uh, the good news was that uh, although... The works department were racing and rallying MGBs, MGCs, and all that thing, and spending money uh, in special tuning. Of course, special tuning was making money, and both BMC and British Leyland, who followed, they loved that. 
Well, next week we'll have the concluding part of that fascinating journey with Graham Robson through the history of the Abingdon Works Department by following the story through the 1960s, where the tuning parts department became more and more successful, and looking at the MG involvement in the Mini's success and that of the Triumph TR7V8 of the likes of Tony Pond, plus we examine where it all went wrong, resulting in the closure and ultimate relocation to Cowley. The MG Car Club Podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, very good to have such a distinguished author on the MG Car Club podcast with us, Adam. Uh, Graham Robson has written more books about cars than anyone else. Amazing achievement. Yeah, he's a lovely bloke, is Graham. I think um, you could probably capture everything he doesn't know about MG and all the uh, all the associated marks on the head of a pin. Absolutely, and I am very proud to call him my mentor. Graham and I have worked with each other for years and years. The problem is shutting us up when the two of us get together. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's have a look at what we've got in the shop. And Inica's been busy again, and this week the face coverings are going to be mandatory in the UK for every time you go in a shop, you have to make sure you're wearing a face mask. We've already got a product that does all that for you and it's very very handy it's the red bandana we have spoken about this on the podcast before but it acts brilliantly as a face covering and basically it's got this really funky cool design on it it's available now through the mg car club shop and you can use it as a bandana or you can pull it over your face have it round your neck basically and then just pull it up over your mouth and nose and you can use that as a face covering to go into the shops it stops you having to carry around one of them flimsy foam things or cotton things that we're all having to wear now so a handy little thing that we've got in the shop uh, they can be dispatched from Kimber House very quickly just £12.50 of course you bung it in the washing machine when you're done and you can use it forever so uh, a handy little thing so in answer to all of those messages that we have received to the MG Car Club about face masks, that's the best thing that we can offer, is the red MG Car Club bandana, fantastic for using as a face mask, or indeed as a bandana, as it was originally designed. Well, yeah, it's, it's properly multi-use, because if, and if you're not blessed with, with, if you're lucky enough to have lots of hair, unlike myself, and you're in your, your MGB and you've got the roof down or your, your MGF, you can use it to, to stop your hair flying all over the place. You get to the shops, you pull it down, you cover your mouth and your nose. And it's very important to cover your nose as well because I see far too many people without their noses covered. Um, and it's it's a properly multi-use product. Brilliant. I never thought we'd hear each other say on the podcast about noses not being properly covered. But this is the new world we live in, ladies and gentlemen, and we're learning as we go. So the bandana is available in red at the minute. Very, very handy to use as a face covering, as Adam says. Cover your nose as well, or to use to cover your hair if you've got the roof down on the MG. And there are some green ones on the way in about a month's time, but just the red ones are in stock at the moment. Uh, a wooden anniversary box is on my list of things to talk about here, Adam. Care to explain? Yes. So, you know when you're in the garage and you've got all those little doodads and bits and pieces that just float around the garage forevermore? Plenty of doodads, I don't, yeah. I don't know if you're anything like me, but if any time I take anything apart, I keep the screws, I keep... You know, the other week I demolished the kids' beds because they've had brand new beds. And all the wooden dowels and screws that came out of this old IKEA flat pack, I've kept. I've never used them, but I've kept you're them. You're just a hoarder. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
But this uh, wooden box is ideal for storing all the bits and pieces in and around the garage. You can put parts in it. You can put, if you've got those old random sockets, you know, because you've lost your 10 mil or you've lost half a, half a set of sockets, you know, you can chuck the odd sockets in this. It's really thick chunky uh, wood so it's going to last well it's nice and nice and hefty um, and it comes with the mg car club 90th anniversary logo on the front so yeah it's perfect i like it very good very handy and uh, anything that's logoed up you could use to make sure that only the bits you put in that box are mg bits don't get mixed up because your life will be confusing that's what I'd say. Uh, also, the MG Street sign, we were talking about this. This is iconic and ideal little thing to have in the 30th anniversary year of the MG Car Club relocating to Kimber House. You can actually buy the iconic street sign that lives on the front gates just outside the front entrance to the MG Car Club headquarters, can't you? Yeah, it's lovely. It's uh, it's perfect gift for, for anyone who's able to come and see us. So um, hopefully as soon as you are able to come and see us, come and see us, have a cup of tea and buy yourself a sign. And preferably uh, wearing your anniversary polo with MG Car Club 90th anniversary logos on. They're still available. We've got them in male fit and ladies fit as well. Just £25. You can get all of these products and more via the shop at shop.mgcc.co.uk. As ever, we'll put all of the links to all of the products we've talked about on the description part of the podcast page and, of course, in the weekly newsletter as well. But for another week of the MG Car Club podcast, from me, Wayne Scott, cheerio, keep safe and well. And from me, Adam Sloman, I'll see you next week. See ya. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.com.